Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered live at Liquid Church by Pastor Tim Lucas. For more information and content, or to connect with our worldwide Liquid Church community, log on to liquidchurchonline.com. In too many Muslim communities, women are being forced to veil themselves. From the crest of a sand dune emerges one of the most arresting and controversial images of Islam, a woman covered from head to toe. To be enshrouded in a cloth prison is clearly suppression. But this is an American, 32-year-old Hiba Ahmed, who lives with her husband and children near Albuquerque, New Mexico. I do not see covering as a negative thing. It is something that I love, and nobody could pay me to take this off. But have you not taken it a step too far? Because in the Quran, it doesn't say that women should cover their faces. That's correct. It says that they should dress modestly. Exactly. But we also know that many of the pious Muslim women in our history also chose to cover their face as well, and it's an extra step that people can do. Hiba started wearing that veil, called in a cob, after 9-11. The attacks inspired her to question, then commit to her faith. So did the sexual harassment Hiba says she experienced in her workplace. So many times in society, women are objectified, they're sexualized, they're used to sell products. This is my liberation, and this is the way that I want to uh, be taken seriously. A personable American in a niqab is an appealing image, but it is far from the norm. In a Muslim country, women are absolutely, undoubtedly oppressed. The women I've spoken to say they are empowered. It makes them feel free because they are choosing to wear this, the niqab or to cover Because they're faces. in a free country and they can. And I will tell you that any woman who is not free is not coming on your show and telling you about it so she can go home and get abused. It's never going to happen. All right, I want to welcome you to our current series on Islam in which today we're taking a peek behind the veil and a look at how here in the West, we may respond to this clash of cultures that seems to be brewing between the world's two largest monotheistic faiths, Christianity and Islam. Uh, when I asked for some questions from you at the beginning of this series, questions about Islam, many of you asked about the veil or the niqab worn by Muslim women. Wasn't this a symbol of how Islamic culture oppresses women? There is no doubt people in the West have visceral reactions to the symbol of the veil. For instance, take a look at this woman walking down the street. What are you thinking when you look at her? And what are you thinking now when you look at her? Without question, culture plays a huge part of how we perceive our Muslim neighbors. And that question mark is looms for a lot of people. Is the veil a symbol of piety before God or oppression by men? What I want to do today is appeal once again to our two primary texts. For Muslims, we will look at the Holy Quran. For Christians, we appeal to the Holy Scriptures or the Bible. And we're going to contrast our respective approaches to this issue. Because although this question of gender equality, it's just one piece of the puzzle, I think it can help us understand the most effective way to engage our Muslim neighbors with both grace and truth, as Jesus taught us. The main teaching from the Quran that supports the wearing of the niqab comes from Surah chapter 24, verse 31. It says this, Say to the believing women that they should lower their gaze and guard their modesty, that they should not display their beauty and ornaments, that they should draw veils over their bosom and not display their beauty. So this is a call for modesty from Muslim women. It's not just the Quran, but the Hadith or the traditions or sayings of the Prophet Muhammad support this. 
The Quran notes that a wife is considered a man's possession. Under Sharia, men traditionally have more rights than women. And in a lot of ways, it's kind of similar to the Old Testament laws of family, tribe, and clan, which of course are troubling to those of us who live in the modern West. At the same time, we just have to acknowledge right now that Christians historically have also been accused of devaluing women. Every now and then, the Apostle Paul has kind of branded a misogynist for all of his instructions to women, how they should wear different things in the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians, he wrote, And every woman who prays with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's just as though her head were shaved. She should cover her head. And the early church took Paul's advice quite literally. For thousands, hundreds of years, really, women wore head coverings throughout the first century when they went to church. In fact, that practice still exists today among conservative denominations like the Plymouth Brethren or you see the Amish or, uh, or the Mennonites. In fact, you could open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Take a look at this for yourself. This is one of those Bible passages that falls under the category, things that make you go, hmm? <laughs> because it seems antiquated, kind of out of date, potentially oppressive towards women. Paul writes, judge for yourselves, he says. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? And we're just going to call a timeout right now from our Islam series. And can somebody tell this to Pastor Dave? Uh, we'll just take a moment, a little rebuke for him. Uh, but Paul says, but that if a woman has long hair, it's to her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. And again, this is kind of weird. If you are a casual Christian, you attend church a little now and then. Or if you just open the Bible, you would, might say, you know what, here's proof. But Paul is misogynist. Why else would he seem to obsess about like hair, you know, head coverings and hair lengths? Because this is one of those deals, one of the first things they teach you in seminary is a fancy word called contextualization. It simply means there's a cultural context you need to be aware of before jumping to conclusions. For instance, did you know in ancient Corinth, long hair on men was a sign of prostitution in pagan temples? And the reverse was true. Women with short hair were also labeled prostitutes in Paul's day. Now, that's ironic, because in other you know, Mediterranean cultures, long hair on men is considered masculine. Samson had long hair in the Hebrew scriptures. Jesus had long hair in Mel Gibson's movie. And uh, in, our, in, in our church, you're not allowed to play in the worship band unless you rock some dreadlocks. Uh, the point is, about head coverings and hair lengths, Paul is simply saying that believers should look and in, in behave in ways that are honorable in their own context, their own culture. The principle he's advocating is modesty, not showing off your appearance or causing others to stumble. Modesty is one of the least practiced spiritual disciplines in the West today. But it's a big deal, actually, before God. In fact, in 1 Timothy, Paul writes, I want women to dress modestly with what? With decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. There goes Lady Gaga, sorry, <laughs> and about half a Nordstrom's right there. But with good deeds, he says, appropriate for women who profess to worship God. So you see, at first you might say, who does Paul think he is telling a woman how to dress, <laughs> what to wear? But the practice is not the point. It's the principle behind the practice. You tracking? The practice is cultural. The principle is timeless. Modesty. It's a sign of reverence before God. It's one of the ways we put the focus on what's inside of us rather than our outside appearance. That's the biblical principle. Decency, modesty are always in fashion in God's eyes. I mean, ladies, let me ask you, would you rather have men judge you by the fit of your clothes or the content of your character? Yeah? Context is decisive. Now, as modern Christians who embrace and enjoy freedom in Christ, we set aside this cultural practice while still embracing the eternal principle. 
The reality is the Apostle Paul was one of the original champions of women's rights and equality within the ancient world. In Galatians 3, he made a statement that was considered downright radical at the time. He wrote, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Never before. In the history of the ancient world, thousands of years had this kind of statement been made. In fact, in the ancient world, in in, in Judaism, Old Testament, Jewish men began every day with a morning prayer that went like this. Lord, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. That was how they opened their day. That's what Judaism taught at the time. So the role of women was radically enhanced by New Testament Christianity. This idea that faith in Christ transcends ethnic gender divides and makes all believers one in Jesus Christ, that was revolutionary teaching at the time. It was radical. That's what the cross does when you get it. It levels the playing field. Because it says we're all made in God's image. Both men and women have equal worth, value, and dignity in God's eyes. But because we're also all flawed and sinful by nature, none of us deserve it. (laughs) So when Christ died on the cross for our sins, brothers and sisters, he reconciled both God and man and each other. He removed all the differences. We like to lord over each other and make us feel superior. And Paul was basically saying, hey, because all believers are heirs in Christ Jesus, none of you are more privileged or superior than anyone else. So again, the biblical principle is gender equality. Not sameness, but equality. Men and women may have different roles and giftings, but they have equal worth in the eyes of God. How great is the Bible, ladies? Yes? This is a very good thing. (laughs) It helps when you understand context, the biblical principle behind the cultural practice. Now, the reason I spent time sorting through all that (laughs) is to set the table for the rest of our conversation today. Because the truth in Christ is that he removed the hostilities, look at the list here, between male and female, gender, Slave or free, socioeconomic status, Jew or Greek, ethnicities. If he removed the dividing line between all those things, then we have to be open to the possibility that Christ can bridge the differences between Muslims in the Middle East and Christians in the West. There is neither Arab nor American, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Is that possible? You need grace-healed eyes to see the big picture, to look behind the veil, as it were, and not focus just on superficial distinctions. Because we may point to an Arab woman wearing a veil as a sign of oppression. But do you know who is the face of American women to the Muslim world? Britney Spears. Muslims would say, hey, you claim we oppress our women, but at least we don't exploit them. We cover ours up, you take their clothes off. They sell everything from records to beer to shampoo. You prostitute your women. Again, Muslims look at the culture that the, the, the West exports and they're repulsed by our decadence. The West's lack of modesty, this kind of culture of lust. To Muslims, a woman in a veil shows piety for God. And we would say, well, you can't be comfortable in that thing. Don't men just make you wear that? They would point to like a Victoria's Secret catalog and say, you think women wear a thong because it's comfortable? Or because American men go, oh, I like that. Touche. Again, I'm telling you this not to say, oh, see, we're awful too, but to simply acknowledge there is fear and misunderstanding on both sides if you keep it at a superficial level. Only Jesus Christ can bring the kind of spiritual unity Paul's talking about. It's not east versus west. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You are all what? 
one in Christ Jesus. This is a verse for believers of Jesus, not Allah. (laughs) Because those of us who believe in God, our values come from our identity in Christ, not from cultural, economic, or even national loyalties. Now, I would love at this moment to simply say, isn't that great? Let's strive for unity. Yeah, take off that veil or, or put something on, Brittany. Let's pray. I'd love to do that for you. But it's not that simple, is it? Especially when you consider the harsher example of Sharia in other parts of the Middle East, the honor killings, stonings, and brutality towards women. These are the teachings of Islamic law that have not been revolutionized by the good news of Jesus Christ. In this broadcast recently shown on Egyptian television, a Muslim cleric explains how and why a husband should beat his wife. In extreme cases, Sharia is about more than piety. It's also about treating women as chattel. This is what it means to, you know, submit to the will of Allah, to submit to your father's wishes, to submit to your husband, to cover Scholar yourself. and activist Ayan Hirsi Ali is one of the world's strongest critics of Islam. She says while the Bible and the Quran both contain misogynist passages, there is a crucial historical difference. Unlike Islam, the Jewish and Christian traditions underwent major transformations during the Enlightenment. These are religions that were subjected to close scrutiny, to systematic criticism. That is a process that Islam in general has not gone through. The impact has been profound. According to a recent study, 12 of the 14 countries with the worst gender inequality are predominantly Muslim. How would you defend? Sharia law. I mean, honor killings and coerced head coverings are actually not Islamic. Um, There are cultural and and tribal practices. But even here in America, there are horror stories. In 2008, Amina and Sara Sayed of Texas were allegedly killed by their father after he found out they were dating non-Muslims. And last year in Arizona, 20-year-old Noor al-Maliki died after her father ran her over. Police say he claimed he did so because she was too Americanized before he pleaded not guilty to murder. There are isolated cases, but they do happen. They happen in this country. Honor killings happen Mm -hmm. in this country. So that has nothing to do with the culture. But that they are, in fact, as isolated incidences, and they they do not represent um, the vast majority of Muslims. I am scared of devout Islam, of the Sharia in this country. I am. Although Christ has set every man and woman free through the cross, sadly there are millions of people still suffering under the law. And the reality is these are difficult issues we have to address head on because this is not a cultural issue but a matter of justice. We, we can't just say, well, you know, live and let live when living is not an option. And again, this varies throughout the Muslim world. Some would say honor killings and spousal abuse are isolated incidents and there is no doubt violent interpretations of the Quran flourish most in the hotbeds of militant Islam like Yemen, you see that in the news, in Afghanistan, in Mecca, in Medina, the holy cities in Saudi Arabia, women may be harassed by religious police if they fail to cover their faces. At the same time, there are signs right now of progress for women in the Muslim world. In Kuwait, women won the right to vote in 2005. 
And Jordan has recently kind of pioneered punishments for so-called honor crimes. But there is a long, long way to go. The question before us is, what do we do in the midst of this clash of cultures? As a Christian, how do we respond when we see blatant injustices? What, what do we do as we see the Muslim population growing in Europe and a lot of people fear the arrival of Sharia on our shores? Most people assume there's one of two choices. There's either accommodation or confrontation. I'll start with the first. Accommodation is what a lot of people in the liberal media and academics advocate. They say, well, like it or not, we live in a pluralistic, diverse country, so we need to respect other people's cultures and traditions. We need to make room for freedom of religious expression. So if Muslims want to build a mosque by ground zero, they have that right. On the other hand, more conservative people tend to choose confrontation, active opposition to all things Islamic. They say this is a clash of civilizations that can only be stopped by force and muscular resistance. So do whatever it takes to let the Muslims know that ain't happening here. So we're going to threaten to burn the Quran and all that kind of stuff. Accommodation or confrontation. Liberal, conservative, those are the choices under hot debate right now. However, when you play each one out, neither response you're going to see is, is adequate. They're both fatally flawed responses to Islam. I'll give you an example where accommodation takes you. You see this in European countries like France nowadays. Uh, last week we talked about militant jihad, using violent force to enforce Sharia around the world. But you may not know, there's also a cultural jihad underway. Muslims call it fatah. Fatah means infiltration. Moving into a country in numbers large enough to actually change the culture. And in a duplicitous way, some radical Muslims use the rights and freedoms that exist in the West to eventually undermine and overthrow them. So in France and England, for instance, Muslims are immigrating in huge numbers, setting up communities, building mosques, and actually establishing Muslim ghettos. I don't mean that in any sort of uh, spurious way, like Chinatown or Little Italy, like immigrants did in America. And then they introduce Sharia, insist that the schools teach Arabic, restaurants serve halal food, and they begin slowly extending their religious rights to the surrounding area. In Oxford, England, 700 members of a mosque recently petitioned for their right as British citizens to practice their faith. But you know what right they demanded? The right to broadcast... The two-minute adhan, that's the Muslim, remember this, the call to prayer. Allah is the greatest from the mosque minaret three times every day. Then that amplified call would be heard over a mile away, meaning that chant would waft over non-Muslim British neighborhoods, schools, and offices. In France, they're facing something called genetic jihad. Have you ever heard of that? It's when Muslim immigrants come into a country and actually have more babies than their host. It's very simple. It's math. The birth rate of French couples is dwarfed right now by Muslim families having five or six children, and the demographics are sobering. Some experts are projecting that by the year 2040, 80% of the population of France will be Muslim. At that point, the Muslim majority will control commerce, industry, education, and religion in that country. Now that's a wake-up call. That's where accommodation leads. In our rush to be democratic, tolerant, and inclusive, we risk blindly accommodating the radical agenda of Islamic domination. As a result, some people swing the pendulum to confrontation. Just this year in France, the government responded by confronting Muslim culture in a symbolic way. That resistance to Islamic influence echoes French President Nicolas Sarkozy's view of the niqab. 
La burqa, ce n'est pas un signe. It's not a religious symbol, he says. It is a sign of enslavement. It will not be welcome in the French Republic. Territoire de la République française. What's happening here in France might be a model for those countries looking to push back against the influx of Islamic culture. This year, the French Parliament overwhelmingly passed a new and controversial law forbidding women to cover their faces in public. So catch this. In order to preserve their freedoms in France, they have to curtail their freedom. Yeah? Now the government is legislating what women can and can't wear. Do you see the tension? There's either naive accommodation or stiff-armed confrontation. Those are the only choices offered by the right and the left to engage Islam. And in the end, both are fatally flawed. The problem with accommodation is that it's passive and at times incredibly naive. Islam, as we've been learning, it's more than a religion. It is an ideology that encompasses every aspect of life. What you wear, what you eat, the language you speak, your politics, your finances, your faith. And the ultimate goal for any practicing Muslim, this is not radical, would be to see Islamic law, Sharia, established around the world. And you ignore that truth at your peril. You accommodate, 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 and suddenly it's too late. The problem with confrontation is that it's aggressive and often incredibly hostile. The more extreme we get in our response, the more we play into the narrative traps set by Middle Eastern extremists. Burning that Quran would have been the biggest coup for Al-Qaeda. They would have said, here's proof! The West is at war with Islam, and they'd recruit more militants and suicide bombers to join jihad. We would respond with bigger bombs, and the cycle never ends. To fight the monster, you have to become one. So what do you do? Accommodation, confrontation, neither response is adequate or gospel-centric. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ offers an alternative, a third option, and that is transformation through the gospel. The gospel of grace is not naive, nor is it hostile. Somehow, Jesus managed to transform the hearts of people who he lived at odds with. He actually addressed the very real evil of human sin and injustice in the world, and yet he managed to do it in a way that changed the hearts and minds of lost people all around him. They were drawn to him. He never compromised truth, yet sinners were drawn like a magnet because they knew he loved them enough to die. That's grace. Grace Plus truth. That's the message of the cross of Christ. And the gospel is the only hope we have of transforming this deadly confrontation into a conversation that brings hope and healing to both sides. To give you a picture of what real life transformation looks like firsthand, I want you to hear how this is happening on the ground in Islamic countries. As you know, I had the privilege of hosting Lazarus Yegnazar from 222 Ministries. It is a church planting and discipleship ministry to Iran. And Lazarus grew up in Iran. His father is actually considered the founder of the Pentecostal movement in that country. And when Lazarus grew up, he became an engineer. He worked in Iran's oil industry. He actually became quite wealthy. And then God called him to leave all of that behind and become an evangelist, a messenger of Christ's grace to his fellow Iranians. Today, his ministry touches the farthest reaches of the Muslim world, and it helps plant churches and basically train leaders for the underground church in Iran. I had a chance to sit down and talk with Lazarus about the incredible inroads that the gospel is making in the Muslim world, especially, and this is where it gets wild, in the darkest strongholds of militant Islam, like Afghanistan and Iran. And he says a revolution is underway. It's not political, but it's spiritual. The kind of real transformation that only happens when God's Holy Spirit moves in a powerful way. This is the story you won't hear reported in the nightly news. 
Hey guys, here today with Lazarus Yegnazar, who's president of 222 Ministries, an international church planning and discipleship ministry to Iran and Afghanistan. Now, Lazarus, you grew up in Iran. You've seen a lot of changes. Can you describe that for us? Well, where should I start? There is so much to say. First of all, I grew up in Iran. I was born 61 years ago. And uh, at that time, the Shah was ruling Iran. So they were used to Shahs in Iran, the kings in Iran. At the time of the Shah, uh, slowly things started improving. Iran was not a very enlightened nation. Uh, also, economically, we were quite backward, but because of the oil wealth and the gas, second gas reserves in the world, uh, money started coming in, United Nations engineers were there, so building and construction started, affluence and wealth started coming in, Iranian students started going to universities. So there was a very nice uh, coexistence of affluence, wealth, and Islam as a religion. People were very comfortable. There were churches, there was mosques, everybody coexisted comfortably, but people were not interested in the gospel. How did the revolution under Ayatollah Khomeini in 1979 change everything? Five million people literally marched towards the airport, Mehrabad International Airport in Tehran to welcome Ayatollah Khomeini. And within a few weeks, things started changing. So all bars, everything which was called sinful and permissible uh, was closed. But at the time of the Shah, as I said, there was total freedom to preach the gospel. Churches were open. Bible society was functioning. We were free to distribute literature in the street, but nobody would take it from us. So at most, I would say after 100 years of evangelical movement in Iran, maybe there were 300 Muslim converts. Within a few years, the Iran-Iraq war erupted. A million people died. Half a million people were bruised and wounded, and they're still in Iran. So all of that happened in an eight-year war, and because of the war, there was an uh, Islamic uh, kind of military control over everything, and people started feeling the constraints of a pure Islamic regime, and they, I suppose some of them, they didn't like it. In the midst of all this, a kind of spiritual famine was created, and people started thirsting, thirsting far beyond anything. Now, not only in Iran, but something phenomenal is happening. In the last 30 years, uh, since the rise of Islamic Republic of Iran, more Muslims have accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior compared to the last 13, 14 centuries since emancipation of Islam. All of a sudden, in the midst of a very strong Islamic regime which has got the total control of all media and all the possibilities, all of a sudden turned towards Christ and they can't have enough about it. They said it's an incredible privilege to get a peek behind the veil of what God is doing in an area of the world most Americans just write off. We think, oh, it's such a dark place. They're all radicals. Militant Islam plus nuclear weapons. What is God going to do there? Answer, more than you can possibly imagine. As Lazarus said, more Muslims have come to Christ in the last 30 years than the last 13 centuries combined. In other words, a spiritual awakening of epic proportions is underway right now in Iran. To put this in perspective for you, at the time of the Islamic Revolution in 1979, take a look at this, there were only about 500 known Muslim converts to Jesus inside the whole country. I've got five little people. Each one represents 100 people. 500 Christians in a country of 74 million. 21 years later, by the year 2000, a demographic survey reported there were 
220,000 Christians inside Iran. From 500 to 220,000 in 21 years, do you think God's up to something? That is over 10,000 new Christians every year for the last two decades. I don't know why this surprises us. It surprised me. I was like, what? You mean God's working someplace else besides America? God just moved on, man. The Bible says very clearly, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting what? Anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. I'm pretty sure that everyone includes Muslims. From secular moderates to religious fanatics, God's desire has always been to have a global family. We are told in heaven, God's family will include believers from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. The gospel is about global transformation, okay? Again, accommodation simply caves to the inevitable. You can't stop these radicals. Let the Muslims go to hell. That's not the gospel. Confrontation says, well, bomb them back to the Stone Age. That's not the gospel either. Jesus said, love your enemies. I don't want anyone to perish. I said, go and make disciples of what? All nations, not just safe nations, not just democratic nations, but all nations. Even the difficult ones, even the dangerous ones, the radical ones, everyone, that's God's dream. That's how big God's heart is for Muslim people. And that's why spiritual transformation is breaking out right now in unprecedented proportions in closed countries like Iran. It was fascinating to hear Lazarus describe how up until the revolution in 79, nobody was interested in God. People had no room for him. He said, they were, they were Muslim in name only. He said, a strip club would sit right next to a mosque and more people would go to the strip club than to the mosque. But then Ayatollah Khomeini arrived and he said, I will show you what real Islam is. And when he began rolling back freedoms, he instituted Sharia, he enforced dress codes, he began oppressing women, arresting Christians. Suddenly he goes, the spiritual climate just did a 180. It just changed. And today he said, people are hungrier for Christ than ever. Why? They are desperate for grace. As the hand of radical Islam squeezes tighter and tighter, the next generation says, I don't want any part of that. I want real freedom. And they see the cross and they're like, who is this God who forgives his enemies? Who forgives me? I want forgiveness. I want freedom. The gospel is like pure oxygen to people who have been locked in a dungeon for decades. Interestingly enough, what's bringing many Iranians to Christ are dreams and visions of Jesus himself. One Muslim man who became a Christian, he said... He had a recurring dream for years of being tortured in the fires of hell. Every night he would dream he was in hell begging God to save him. Remember, most Muslims live in fear because in Islam, there's no savior, okay? They, they don't have the assurance of salvation like Christians enjoy. They have to hope at the end of their life their good outweighs the bad, hopefully 51% over 49. And one night, instead of dreaming of hell, he had a vision of the prophet Isa. Do you remember who Isa is? Jesus reaching down into the fire and saying, take my hand, I'm the only one who can save you. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the moment he woke up, he put his trust in Christ as his personal savior. Jesus came to him in a dream. That may seem strange to us. That's like, that may weird you out. But in the Arab world, it is very common to talk about dreams and visions. So, so do you see what God's doing? He's drawing Muslims to himself using their worldview. <laughs> they already have a reference point for the prophet Isa, Jesus, from the Quran. And, and Lazarus is like, God's leveraging that knowledge to supernaturally reach Muslims with the truth of the gospel. It's very, very exciting 
to read and hear. There are literally thousands of testimonies like that. What's unusual is how young so many of these converts are. Most of them are under the age of 30. Iran is a very young country, and young adults, university students, are disillusioned. They are cynical. They are searching for an alternative to the radical theology of Islam. They have, they have no memory of former freedoms. <laughs> they grew up only knowing life under the Ayatollah and Ahmadinejad. So I asked Lazarus, how can Christians in the West help support this spiritual transformation taking place in the next generation? Here's what he said. Iran has a lot of young people. What is the population like? Over 60% are under the age of 26. That makes 42 million of them. It's one of the most youthful populations. You know, every Iranian primary school student has to march every day on a flag of Israel and America, say that to America, that to Israel, before joining the class. This has been happening for the last 30 years. So in the midst of this hateful vengeance and this kind of uh, attitude, these people come up and they say, no, we're disillusioned. Okay. We are not satisfied what we have heard and what we have touched mm -hmm. and what we have felt. What other signs of revival and breakthrough do you see? Since 2006, when we started the Alliance of Iranian Ministries 24-7 mm -hmm. uh, TV program, hundreds of thousands started accepting Jesus as their savior. Our follow-up team works day and night, yeah. and we cannot handle all the calls which is coming yes. in. A lot of Christians in the West hear about Iran trying to acquire nuclear weapons, or they'll hear Ahmadinejad say things like, uh, we need to wipe Israel off the map. Are Muslims to be feared or befriended? I think his response is very clear. Uh, Ahmadinejad, with all whatever constraint he has, and whatever our uh, appreciation of him as a character is as a president, he's a sincere Muslim. He's one of the most sincere ones I've ever come across. What is baffling me, I understand him that fear is gripping the nations in the Middle East, but why is the church, and sometimes church leaders, gripped in fear? There is no fear. Perfect love costs out all fear. And I think Muslims understand when we, pray, when we speak and preach the word of God because of fear or because of inner conviction coming from the cross of Christ. How can Christians in the West best pray for and partner with organizations like 222 Ministries to bring the gospel? Well, the mission... Uh, strategy is completely changed. The mission has come home. You don't send missionaries to Africa or the Middle East. There are a million, more than a million Iranians here. There are over 200,000 Afghans in the United States. You, you call about Somalis or Bangladeshis or Pakistanis, they're right here in your neighborhood. Muslims are true believers. They seek God. They have an understanding of God in a different sense. But we have to come and say, no, we have a God which is loving, which has died for your sins. And we have to be prepared for it. Preparation is the most important thing. Lazarus, if you had one word of challenge to the American church or even our church congregation here at Liquid, what would it be? Without missing words and hitting around the bush, I would say pray for persecution. Every time persecution hits in the Old Testament, people are drawn to God. And when people are drawn to God, God's glory descends. In the New Testament, wherever the persecution hits the church, people are drawn to God. In our affluence and blessing and anointing, we have come to a sense of adequacy without God, which is so destructive. We are becoming a victims of our own anointing and success. And that brings tears to God's face. So I would say humility, not allowing us to be taken into a situation where God will send persecution because of his love. Humility, prayer, a desire to see God use persecution to spread his gospel to the ends of the earth. I can't tell you how incredibly humbling and convicting it was 
to talk with a man who is literally risking his life to take the gospel to his Muslim friends who he loves in Iran. I, I was honestly struck to the heart when he said, the curse of the American church is our sense of adequacy without God. I was like, I'm sorry? You don't need him. He said, most churches in the West, we don't have room for God. He goes, you have bands, lights, PowerPoint. If he doesn't show up, church goes on. In Iran, if there's no Holy Spirit, no church. People go to prison. People die. Right now, 50 of his ministry leaders are in prison. In the West, we have everything we need. And he's right. Our affluence and our abundance is paralyzing because it masks our dependency on the Holy Spirit. Do we want to see this happen? In New Jersey... Or is God just going to be busy on the other side of the world while we batten down the hashes and draw up the drawbridge? Folks, this is the gift of the persecuted church. In Islamic countries, in humility, we learn from them. And the truth is, persecution and suffering right now in closed nations like Iran is spreading the gospel like wildfire, just like it did in the New Testament. Early church father Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the Christian church. It's not growth tactics, it's blood. And here's a sobering truth. There is not a single one of the 55 predominantly Muslim nations on earth today where Christians are not persecuted. So although we find ourselves in a different cultural context in the West, there needs to be a humble recognition that regardless of what the news tells you, regardless of your politics, God is on the move in the Muslim world. The only question is, do you want to be a part of that transformation? Or do you just want to watch it and critique it? Will we retreat to our posture of naive accommodation or fear-based confrontation? Look, I'm human. <laughs> I, that's why I like the disciples. <laughs> it's always easier to call down fire, isn't it? Remember Peter and John? They're walking along with Jesus, and they come to this unbelieving town. And they say, Jesus, should we call down fire from heaven on them? Yeah, that'd be a great trick. Calling down fire on your enemies is a much easier thing. The question is, do you just see nations like Iran as the enemy or as an opportunity? Because that's how God sees it. God does not see politics or nations. He just sees lost people he loves. And he's already at work bringing about a real revolution, the transformation of hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. And the question is, do you want to be a part of it? Because he's moving whether we're ready or not. Henry Blackaby always says, you know, people say, I want to see God move in my life. You know what you do? You find out where God's already at work and you join him. <laughs> Practically speaking, if this has picked your interest, you want to get involved, I want to encourage you to visit Lazarus's website. It's 222ministries.org. They take their name from 2 Timothy 2, chapter 2. They have a satellite TV program that shares the gospel with children. They actually pioneered FCNN, that's the Farsi Christian News Network, and it's the first Iranian Christian news agency. It's the voice of the persecuted church in Iran. So visit 222ministries.org to get a peek behind the veil of the Muslim world. It's an awesome portal. Uh, guys, I hope this has been... I'm hoping this has been eye-opening for you <laughs> because personally speaking, just like prepping for this series has stretched my heart. I'm like, I'm not fully there yet. <laughs> it's enlarged my vision for the world. One of the things that I've come to realize through our study is that as Christians, we have one thing. We have one thing. We have the love your enemies strategy all to ourselves. <laughs> no one else wants it. <laughs> No one else wants it, honestly. There is no other religion in the world that teaches enemy love, that our God actually embodied his power by dying for the infidel. Only Jesus Christ has the power, guys. It's not politics. It's not finances. It's not social reform. 
only people who have been born again and they are being transformed by the Holy Spirit inside of them. Help us, Jesus. Have that capacity to love their enemies as Jesus taught. In this idea in Second Peter, the Lord doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That stretches me. Honestly, I'm not there all the time. That's humbling. This makes me want to get on my knees and say, God, you've got to enlarge my heart because sometimes the global violence, the threats, just make me scared and feel hopeless. But the truth is, God isn't done. He's not done with us in the West, and he's not done with Muslims in the Middle East. He is patiently working, and he invites us to be a part of bringing the kingdom of forgiveness, peace, and reconciliation to a world that needs it more than ever. So we may find it hard to pray for sworn enemies who threaten our destruction, like Ahmadinejad. But you know what Lazarus said to me about him, by the way? He said, he said pray for Ahmadinejad. He's the best evangelist we have. Every time he opens his mouth, thousands come to Christ. I said, what do you mean? He goes, because of the radical, violent vision he has, people look at him and they say, I don't want that, and they turn to Christ. Catch this, guys, because that man opens his mouth. They don't choose jihad, they choose Jesus. And so Lazarus said, he goes, pray for his protection, Tim, not his destruction. I think my mouth hit the floor. And suddenly I thought, now I understand why Jesus said, pray for those who persecute you. Because that's how the kingdom advances. Never forget, Christianity is a movement that was born where? In the Middle East. And it was, and still is, the most powerful liberating force in human history. Only a personal encounter with God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, is the only thing that can truly transform men and women who were once violent into people of peace and reconciliation. And that's not just pie-in-the-sky wishful thinking, as you are going to experience firsthand next week. I don't even know how to tell you this, uh, because this is as fresh as Friday this week. Um, we have been working on a long-shot surprise to end this series, to really bring home a vision for the transformational power of the gospel to liberate like captive people. And um, I told you I wanted you to hear from the lips of Muslims themselves. This is, this is crazy, but on Friday we received word that Masab Hassan Youssef will be flying into Liquid next week to speak to us. You may recognize him from CNN or Fox News. To those of you who don't know, Masab Hassan Youssef is the son of one of the founders of Hamas, the most militant terrorist organization in the Middle East. Hamas are the terrorists behind the Palestinian uprising against Israel. And growing up, he was the son of Sheikh Hassan Youssef. He was being groomed to follow in his father's footsteps. But everything changed when Masab embraced the teachings of another famous Middle East teacher and became a follower of Jesus Christ. His book, Son of Hamas, is riveting. And he finished it in two days. <laughs> and I'm a slow reader. It has become a New York Times bestseller. You can see the, uh, it says, a gripping account of terror, betrayal, political intrigue, and unthinkable choices. And on Friday, we learned he's coming here to Liquid next week to close out part four of our series, Can We Coexist? I, can't, I can't believe this is happening. Uh, when you hear his story next week, you're going to shake your head. Before the age of 21, Masab saw things no one should ever see. Terror, torture, abject poverty, abuse of power. He actually witnessed behind-the-scenes dealings with the upper of Middle East leaders who make headlines around the globe. You'll hear about this. He was trusted at the highest levels of Hamas, thrown into a military prison in Israel because of their suicide bombings and terror attacks against Israel. And it was in that time of turmoil 
that he was first exposed to the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the news that the cross brings peace between God and man and makes brothers out of enemies. He actually became an agent, a secret agent for Shin Bet. That's the CIA of Israel. He accepted Christ in the process, and now he's here in America under political asylum, and he's coming to Liquid to share his story with us. In short, you ain't going to want to miss church next week. You're going to want to be here. That is amazing. This is a, does God have the power to pluck somebody from a family of terrorists and adopt him into the family of God? Masab is living proof of the radical transformation that is only possible through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So phone your neighbors, invite your friends. You're going to hear from the son of Hamas next Sunday at Liquid. Exciting? Very, very exciting. Really exciting. Let's pray right now. Jesus, we thank you. Lord, you're stretching us. You're stretching me. You're, you're expanding, Lord, our heart. Our heart for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his son, Jesus, to die for me. For everyone in this room under the sound of my voice, listening online, for Musab Hassan Youssef, he's our now brother in Christ. Lord Jesus, you are a God of miracles. Thank you for your word from Lazarus. <laughs> Lord, we think of raising the dead. That's what you're doing in the Middle East. Lord, we humbly um, worship you for what you're doing. And Lord, we humbly ask, would you let us be a part of it? Let us see your glory come not just in the east, but also here in the west. Revive us, Father, by your Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen. Thanks for listening to Liquid Church Audio. If this message has touched you, we'd love to know how. Just email Pastor Dave Adamson at churchonline at liquidchurch.com. For more information and content, or to connect with our worldwide Liquid Church community, log on to liquidchurchonline.com.